Scottish rugby international. Uh, Rory won 31 caps for Scotland before his career was ended prematurely due to a, a wrist injury. Um, having left the, the, the rugby field, Rory then pivoted to become an entrepreneur and uh, started a company called uh, Coco Pro, uh, which was a drinks company that had a very successful distribution, both uh, domestically here in the UK and internationally. Um, and today, uh, Rory has been taking... Um, his experiences both as an entrepreneur and as a professional rugby player into the field of leadership development, working as a leadership coach for Kianos, uh, supporting leaders across the corporate world to really enhance their uh, impact with the teams that they're responsible for. Um, Rory's also a very effective communicator and often appears as a commentator or a co-commentator at some of the largest rugby uh, events. So Rory, first and foremost, a very big welcome to the podcast and thank you again for making the time to be with us today. Luba, that's uh, that's quite the introduction. Uh, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to be here and to be able to tell a, a little bit about my story, but probably more importantly, the the kind of impact that you you spoke about that I've tried to make with leadership now. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Rory, I'm really curious around um, your background. Um, as I mentioned to you when we first spoke, you know, I started my own career in the whole field of sports. You know, I was a sports psychologist and have always had that interest in the you know, the intersection between performance from a sporting perspective and also uh, within the business world. So I'm just curious around how your, your background has shaped maybe some of your worldviews and when you think about leadership and, um, you know, the, the work that you do today. So maybe you could kind of start there for us, Yeah, yeah of course. And I'll be delighted to. Um, I have to say, Luba, it's, it's probably something whereby uh, my self-awareness around the importance of you know that that upbringing. You know my background, my my earliest years. Uh, I've probably only come to light more in recent years, actually, with regards to how you know that that value set, the way I see the world, my my experience as a youngster, those who I role modelled from, um, right. properly impacted. And that that came, you know, with with the work I do with Kiana. It's one of the first things we typically do with either individuals or leadership teams is have that have them reengage with the experiences they have from first memories on our through to we typically say up to the age of 22 so either yeah. a few years into your first employment or towards the end of maybe further education or whatever it may be but um so if, if i look at my own example of that you know i i grew up in a in a relatively small village i went to a, a school that the kind of village was was built around and people came from from all around, so a, a school called Dollar Academy, um, and into into a family whereby my dad worked incredibly hard. My mum was a homemaker for for the three kids, my older brother, younger sister. Um, but we and we lived in a in a community, a, a small a small village whereby sort of contribution to community, that sense of belonging, was something that 
that matter. There was a there was a safety uh, of the village. You know, not uh, slightly different days um, nowadays globally, but actually the village still has that still that same sense of people looking after each other, that sense of belonging. That's certainly something that that has carried through. And then when you nip in my experiences in sports, whereby I typically played team sports, but, you know, did some individual stuff like sort of tennis and golf and so on. Um, but I felt that having the individual drive in those team sports, but also the importance of those around you and how you can either influence those or get be at your best with those around you, uh, it's something that I, I definitely carry through. It came from, you know, I've got amazing role models in my in my upbringing, you know, mm-hmm. lucky enough to grow up with, with mm-hmm. both sets of grandparents around, uh, both parents around. Uh, dad worked, dad worked hard and long hours, but you know, I got a, a good work ethic from that, um, and the importance of of that family time. So I think mm-hmm. you know that as a as a brief overview of kind of my my upbringing hopefully gives a bit of insight as to a lot of the core of what really kind of matters to me now. Yeah, I, I love the focus on the importance of belonging and a sense of community. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting when you look at some of the things that negatively impact high performance. Um, a breakdown of community or a breakdown of psychological safety in teams is is one of the things that can often show up, right? Um, so it's lovely to hear that, you know, that experience of community, that experience of belonging was such an important kind of influencer for you in terms of how you thought about, you know, the work that you do today. Yeah, I think it's it is a really interesting one. I, I, it's funny because through through my my entrepreneurial journey, through my my sporting career, belonging was important, really important. But mm. belonging without having belonging kind of only fueled my individual drive as well to be able to contribute to something bigger than just my own performance. Yeah, um, and it's a it's a really interesting dynamic because. Now, if I reflect on my career, there are times whereby, you know, undoubtedly, without question, I put the the common good or the team outcome yeah. ahead of myself. And, right. you know, there, there would be a case whereby I look at, uh, should, should I have been more selfish in the way that I played that yeah. could also have brought other people with me? And I still would have, could I have had a greater impact? Yeah. Um, to the team by potentially being that little bit more selfish, you know, something that you could potentially term reasonable, se- reasonable selfishness, which is actually we, something again we yeah. talk about with Kianis with regards to leadership accessibility. Is there a reasonable selfishness for leaders, whereby rather than being a ten out of ten for accessibility for people to go to them yeah. and take their time, is there an area whereby you could be reasonably selfish and say, look, I need to get what I need to get right now yeah. um, at the expense of you. But don't get me wrong, I will I will give up that time later on, but I need to be able to get myself in the right place. So it's, uh, it's you know, only through the process of the journey I've gone through, I've really reflected back on, on those kind of things. But there's no doubt that when I look at the, the role models throughout my, my, my life with, like my dad played, uh, international rugby, you know, during the seventies for Scotland. Mm. Uh, my bro- my brother uh, played age group rugby before I ever got into into age group rugby. Uh, my mum and dad both, you know, good tennis and golfers. My mm. my papa was 
the late Bill McLaren, the voice of rugby. So, you know, everything for him was about preparation and making sure that you got yourself in the right space to be able to deliver what you needed to, to deliver. And, it, you know, he was... You struggled to travel the world and find someone who would say a bad word about mm-hmm. against Bill McLaren. So you know that humanity uh, was also an important thing. So yeah, all of these different components is, is something that's been really fascinating to dig deeper into over the past few years. Because until then, in sport, time flashes by. You reflect on the last game probably for 24 hours, and then you're just thinking ahead to what's next, and then. Mm-hmm. My entrepreneurial journey was all about getting things going, building the plane while you're flying it. Next thing, next thing, next thing. Where are we working towards? Where are we working towards? And actually, all too infrequently, you actually jump off the hamster wheel and, and sit and just take a little bit of time to pause. Yeah, yeah. I I love this kind of balance you're talking about between our, our agencies and our communions. Yeah, And uh, I think you do the thing as uh, a, a, a good amount of selfishness. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. Which is important, right? Because it, it speaks to the importance of setting boundaries. Um, you know, if, if you want to perform and lead others to perform, um, it starts with what you do with your own personal preparation. So, you know, are you, you know, creating the boundaries that allow you to sleep enough uh, to, uh, you know, do all that active rest and recovery? Um, and then, you know, uh, as you're engaging with the team as well, how do you calibrate that need to fit and and and, and others right um you know we need to do that but at the same time as you said we also need to kind of allow that creative expression to come forth as well so interesting that kind of you reflecting on what that balance kind of might best look like for yourself yeah yeah i think so and i think without without doubt as well like in you know what, what sport gives you you're, you're essentially doing your hobby as a job in most cases people are doing a hobby as a job mm-hmm. um the danger of it is that you become you come you become defined by that job, right? Yeah. And you and that's where a lot of people struggle with the transition from sport to life after sport is because they go from being the rugby player, the footballer, the tennis player, um, you know, whatever it may be, into something else, yeah. and is trying to escape that 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 title and identity that is essentially there by your job that's being done. And, you know, it took me, it, it took me a good while to be able to sort of re-engage with really who I was. And then, only when you know that can you start building the boundaries and understanding of, you know, where, where are the boundaries um, within which you want to operate and over which if people step your, you, you need to, you need to be clear. Um, and I think it's, it's certainly something that, a lot of the, the senior leaders that I now work with mm. feel this element of responsibility and accountability to the job that they are delivering. Mm. But often it can breach, it can breach their principles or what they stand for, but it's their job, it's paying their bills and it's yeah. ultimately what they're being defined by. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's important to understand what those are and what you stand for. Um, to allow you to, to be most effective within those roles, if nothing else. Yeah, 100%. Uh, you know, and again, looking at some of the triggers for the burnout state, which is such a systemic problem today, you know, that values conflict, you know, where your personal values don't resonate with maybe work you've got to do, and that can be a real, real challenge for, 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 for many people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm really curious about the incident that kind of led to you having to 
reimagine yourself, right? Because you were identified as a rugby player, successful rugby player, and then suddenly, you know, an event happens that your your world falls apart in many ways, right? Um, mm. So that speaks to the need to draw on resilience. It speaks to the need to redefine yourself, reimagine yourself. And, and I'm just curious as to how that journey was for you and what were the things that really supported you getting to a, a clarity around that purpose of yours, yeah? Yeah, Aluba, it's, it's something I'm, I'm very comfortable talking about, um, probably because it's far enough away now that it doesn't it doesn't hurt the same. But, you know, any current player or player going through, or sports person going through that transition from the identity that they create through sport to whatever uh, life offers afterwards. I, I I got injured. I was, you know, I was in a, I was a rugby player one day. I went to see a, the top hand and wrist um, consultant in in Europe the next day, who told me that I was one bad knock away from needing a wrist replacement. Which at that time, I think there had only been three hundred such operations done in Europe to the general public. So. You know, you're not you're not talking elite sport here. You're talking about general public, and um, so that for me was the you know was was curtains, and it took a long the long drive from Leeds back up to Newcastle, where I had been for sort of 15 or 16 months, and uh, you know I, the director of rugby, Dean Richards, had been delivered the news, and he had you know I walked into his office, and he had he had been told by the head medic who, who took me down to Leeds and kind of just said, look, sorry to hear about the news. Uh, just grab your grab your gear. No need to come back in. We'll, we'll organise some kind of settlement. All the best. And, you know, that kind of really brought it home that mm-hmm. my I was an asset at the club for as long as I could cross the whitewash to go, to go out and play. Um, and it was just very transactional from then on. Mm-hmm. I, I struggled. I, I actually went in the next day and told told the guys because I'd you know they had been aware that I I picked up a knock but didn't realise the significance of it so I had a kind of teary delivery of the news to the the group and you know they made me uh, you know feel slightly better albeit you know it was it was definitely tough to take and then I vividly remember the next day um, in professional sport I certainly during those times you had you had your schedule that was a seven-day schedule and you maybe got a kind of forward look a couple of weeks without the the real detail on everything but I had my seven-day schedule I think it was the Tuesday morning I'd been to see the physio on the Monday Uh and Tuesday Tuesday morning I I knew I was going to see the squad and the Wednesday morning I guess was the first day on which I had no purpose as a professional sports person uh-huh. And my schedule was on the bedside table, and an A4 an A4 sheet that told me where where I was going to be, what I was going to be doing, what I was going to be wearing, how how long it was going to be last, uh, how long it was going to last, who I was going to be around, and you know for seven days, yeah. uh, when I was going to be eating. The only uh-huh. thing I needed to worry about typically was getting myself to training, getting myself home from training, and uh-huh. then what I was going to have for dinner, largely speaking. Um, and I woke up on the Wednesday morning and I looked over at my bedside table. I could see the see the, my program on the bedside table. And I felt like I, I weighed a ton. I was kind of, I felt like kind of looking down on myself mm-hmm. and I could see the outline 
pressing into this mattress like I just couldn't move. And I knew that it was because that piece of paper with the schedule on the bedside table had uh, had no relevance to me anymore. And I had done an MA in business studies at Edinburgh Uni before I turned professional. So I turned professional probably a little bit later than, than most at, at 22. Um, I'd worked in a number of businesses, you know, in a in an oil and gas company, in a sales and marketing business, in a in a drip, in a food and snacking business, just doing some work experience in there. But you know, I woke up that day and didn't know what on earth I was going to do. So it took me a while. It, it took me a long time to be able to work out what I was going to do, and I probably had a hundred coffees across about a three month period with with people just learning what they did, what that actually meant with regards to their job. You know, what were they being measured on? What did they enjoy about the job? What did they dislike about it? What what does good look like with regards to progress through seniority and all that kind of stuff? Um, and then during that period, I, I, I caught up with a couple of pals who I had done a bit of work with uh, for, a drink, for a, a, an ice cream and snacking business. And then... Uh, we thrashed out a plan to to launch the business um, that we ended up going on to to launch, and you know that was that in itself was a really interesting challenge because you're you're starting something from scratch, you know, a blank sheet of paper, um, yeah. building building a brand, building a team, building a culture, um, building sales, and and trying to make it all add up, and building yeah. relationships with investors or shareholders or whatever it might be. Um, and all of that it was it was like an on the job MBA whereby you're you're paddling you're swimming against the tide and just yeah. trying to keep yourself afloat. Uh, but the learning experience through that was absolutely incredible. And through that, I guess I kind of reconnected with that sense of belonging, building something meaningful, um, you know, that others engage with, and trying to take them on a on a similar journey to what I would have done in in sport. If you're a leader in sport, you've got to be able to. For the people in your team to know which direction you're going in, um, and what the the key things to trying to deliver success are going are going to be, and what they're going to be measured on. So, yeah, yeah it was um, re- really interesting. But uh, but uh, when I reflect on it, a horrible, horrible time whereby uncertainty of what the future yeah. looks like. Um, let's not get away from the fact that I kind of viewed myself as being a rugby player from school days when. You know, whilst I was studying and doing exams, all, all I cared about was a Saturday morning. You know, right. going and going and playing against another school team on a Saturday morning with my with my best mates, and your week would be defined by that 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 result, right? Yeah. Um, and and so when you think about that being your most important thing from let's say twelve years old to thirty two years old, and the other things that were just ingredients of life, right? Yeah. Um, and just trying to trying to redefine that was was a, a really really tough time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a real uh, resurrection from the ashes, you know, and <laughs> everything. Yeah, all, yeah, all yeah. Uh, you're, you're painting a new picture, you know. You've got to try and reengage. Leaving leaving that behind as well is something that definitely takes time. I think. Yeah. Because you know whether you like it or not, social media has you as uh, and you know an introduction to anything is former. Mm-hmm. Mm. former internationalist, a former rugby player, whatever it may be. So, mm. you know, it's not, even whilst I would be wary that I was no longer that, it would be the natural narrative that people put, put around you. 
Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like there's a there's a grieving process for you personally there, um, but then there's also a challenge to um, present yourself in a way that uh, you know speaks to the different you that you're looking then to become, rather than you know what people would have framed you as from their previous experience of you. Um, you know, you, you talk about the importance of of kind of setting the direction of travel for, and then getting folks to work, kind of come together and then the teamwork that it takes to get people moving in that direction. Um, I would imagine, as you sought to do that with your entrepreneurial venture, that getting yourself to a position where the, the, the belief was strong in your ability to carry this through and the optimism that you can make it work were also really key components. So I'm just curious as to how do you discover that belief, you know, in yourself, do something completely new to completely reinvent yourself, right? And, 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 and you know, how did you kind of move forward with, with the optimism that you ended definitely needed to kind of have at that point? Yeah. Yeah. Aluba, you know, I'd be, I'd be lying to you if I said we had a really solid structure and plan that we were looking to execute because you've got to be so agile. Yes. You've got to know what you stand for and you've got to know where you want to be going. Um, and, but the optimism, Part of it was part of it was blind optimism, if I'm honest. Um, mm. You know, just a belief that I guess taking taking some of the principles of sport, whereby if you do the right things uh, more often than not, and mm. you are pushing towards delivering outcomes, then you will. And, and like I think it's really interesting. Uh, Stuart McAnally, who's literally just retired from professional rugby. Mm. Uh, summed up brilliantly in, in his press release just I think it must have just been last week that Scotland Hooker and he, and he said um, being being good isn't that difficult if you do the basics pretty well and you work pretty hard and you've got a little bit of X factor to you in whatever dynamic and that doesn't mean being the quickest or the strongest or whatever you can do something that sets you apart a little bit then you can be really good. Mm. But to be great is really, really hard. Um, you know, you've got to you've got to either have some more ingredients, mm. um, more ability, or go above and beyond, right? And I think that that really resonated with me in, in the business side of things. I, I surrounded myself with good people mm-hmm. in the business. Um, often people who knew significantly more than I did. Yeah. Um, and and from there you know, you've got to be able to try and accumulate that, the positive experiences that could be carried. So whether that's bringing in investors who have invested businesses that have gone from zero to of value over a period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my co-founders had uh, a brand that was on the, on the up at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that was another factor which, which obviously I, I was able to lean on. Yeah. They, they still definitely didn't have all or probably in some cases many of the answers but you kind of felt you're on the same boat as others um but then what what i didn't take into account is just the level to which you rely on market conditions and the big business that's going to fuel the success of us as a small business mm-hmm. being uh, uh receptive and being able to being able to do the right things and then be absorbed with, into those bigger businesses. But you know, when you're working at, with a consumer, a range of consumer products, mm. you need those markets to be 
ripe for accepting your products if it is the right product in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, that that was that was what we what we learned over time was that actually our products were the right place at the right time in front of the right people. Mm-hmm. But actually, that quickly turned and that the market started shrinking for opportunities. Supply chains and headcounts and the big businesses started being reduced, which meant that the stress on their time became reduced. And we were still doing a lot of good things. And you're pivoting and starting to look at different sectors of different markets and different products. And again, feeling like we're ahead of the game. But actually, you can only control things to a certain extent. And we, knew, and we even, in, in the, even in the investment and fundraising process, we had some absolutely stinking luck. <laughs> go against us and you know uh, you talk you spoke about resilience and so on earlier on through injury there's nothing that's challenged my resilience more than going to market when you've got a burn rate on your cash flow Mm -hmm. that you need to be able to raise cash and you're you're doing the right thing you're talking to the right people we had a couple of you know uh, I, I, I won't give the detail on on it but we had one one investor had a stroke which took him out the occasion and the ringleader to our investment to take us to another level passed uh, 48 hours before we were due to sign off the wow. the investment rounds and from there we went from having a big chunk of investment that was going to take our business onto another level mm-hmm. to having a fifth of the investment we needed mm-hmm. because the people he had brought in went away and it was just a uh, you know the, the sadness in that is that we lost someone who was an important person to our business, who's a wonderful man. Um, but it probably, you know, it, it undoubtedly had a significant impact on our business. So you know, you learn as you go along. Um, and you know, w- would I would I change the route that I went down? Maybe would I learn more if I'd gone down a different route? Probably not. Almost certainly not. Well, this is what strikes me by your journey, uh, Rory, because, you know, if you look at the field that you're in today, working with leaders, when is leadership most important? Um, it's important during times of uncertainty and change. And um, actually what you've experienced with, uh, you know, what happened at the end of the rugby career and then moving into an entrepreneurial um, um, uh, role is huge amount of uncertainty, huge amount of change, a real need to be aware of where you're at in any given moment, and then the, the flexibility to adjust and adapt to meet those changing conditions, to embrace the learning process, to overcome failure, to learn from it. So these are all the key things that are massively important um, within leadership. And you could argue you have the best possible routines to work they're currently doing, yeah? And, well, yeah. I, I, you know, there, there are definitely times whereby... Uh, you know, resilience is such a big thing, right? It's, it's mm. spoken about the world over. Mm. And, you know, how do you, how do you generate resilience? How do you create resilience without experience of challenge? Mm. Right? Mm. People, people, you know, babies aren't born with resilience. Yeah. They develop resilience through challenge that they face. And, you know, it's like, you know, part of what we talk about is, is heli- the, the influence of helicopter parenting. Right, and for, on a leadership level, if you think about leading people, the negative, the unintended consequence of helicopter parenting, whereby you're clearing the way for your the people in more junior positions to get a clear run in front of them. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's that. Yet, 
you know, any, the vast majority, anyone in leadership who's written a book, the majority of leaders who talk on podcasts or any sort of thought leadership, mm-hmm. they will more often than not put their success down to areas and the challenges that they face throughout their career, right? So yeah. actually, in, in my view, I'm, I think I'm a resilient person. I think my experience my experiences have built my resilience, undoubtedly. I think I've, I've always had a bit of mongrel and nugget in me. Now, that's, again, going back to my hinterland, my background, whereby you know, I, I saw the hard work that my dad uh, had. You know, I, I grew up as a younger brother to where my bro and I would probably scrap to a certain extent, and I'd lose the majority of those scraps. So but I think the... Um, I think, you know, yes, I'm probably well positioned uh, to be able to talk to people about, you know, overcoming obstacles and, you know, building resilience and, and challenge. Um, there are also a lot of people in uh, in leadership who sometimes just, uh, I think I used the hamster wheel reference earlier, they get on the hamster wheel and they run Monday to Friday, they jump off at the weekend, don't really stop to reflect on where they're at or what they're doing that they could do better or, um, you know, the areas whereby they could positively disrupt the status quo. Um, and then they just jump back on on a Sunday night or a Monday and go do the same again. So I think what my big, my big learning is that, you know, you've got to stretch yourself to be able to get better. It's like, you know, if you go to the gym, you don't just go and do a one gym session and look the way you want to look. Um, if, if you want to grow muscle, you've got to actually challenge the muscle and stretch the muscle and stress the muscle and actually create these micro tears in the muscle to make it grow right mm-hmm. and if you use that in a in a life context you've got to push yourself beyond the level to which you're comfortable to be able yeah. to actually grow so i think a lot of the time um my role is to try and take leaders beyond the level of which they actually believe they're capable of themselves yeah I love this. Yeah, getting people outside their comfort zone into that space of kind of, you know, optimal performance where they're really looking to challenge themselves. And at the same time, looking at that metaphor that you talked about, if you spend all of your time in the gym and don't reflect on the program you're running or just keep doing the same thing the whole time and, and you know, get into work overload, that's also not going to be the most effective way to build that muscle. You need to have rest and recovery. You need to have a reflection in terms of how things are going. You need to adjust and adapt your approach. So I'm curious... Um, you know, when you're working with leaders who are on that hamster wheel, what are the, some of the things that uh, you found helpful to just kind of just reveal that to the teams or the individuals you're working with um, um, and then encourage them to look at different approaches? Yeah, it's, it, it's a really, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. A lot of the time you've got to take them out of their workspace. Because mm. in, in, in all reality, when people, whether you like it or not, when people are in their workspace, they are still tuned into the work, right? Yeah. Um, and I think for me, um, there's, there's, a, there's a, a friend of mine, Drew Povey, actually, who talks about the three Ps as being a fundamental for, for change, being pause, but like you've got to create a genuine pause. Now, whether right. that's a, a holiday or taking, them, taking people away from their work environment, phones, laptops, and so on, to create right. this pause. Then you then you then you build perspective as to where people are and where they want to be, individually, mm-hmm. collectively, organisationally, mm-hmm. and then you can start prioritising, mm-hmm. right? And um, I think from from my perspective, you know, I talk about 
having to stretch yourself to be able to grow. And, you know, lots of people might think that's about, you know, proper challenge, working 16-hour days, or that might be, um, you know, trying to trying to do things that you can't yet do and, and failing again and again, right? Yeah. For some people, it's actually stopping doing what they've, they've done for a, a stint that, that makes them feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but actually, when you hold the mirror up and you start, so for some people, it's reflecting on hinterland. For some people, it's self-reflection and identification of things that they've always known subconsciously or even consciously. And they just kind of shelved and haven't done anything about it because the hamster wheel is more important for delivering a salary or a bonus or whatever it might be. But when you take them off, you realize that they realize that over time, the likelihood is that they'll be able to run quicker when they're on the hamster wheel. That will mean that when they jump off, they can they can put their feet up and relax and regenerate and, and be ready to go again. Um, but I think it's... It, it's a real privilege because you work with a lot of leaders who are important roles in, in big organizations, whether business or sports. Mm-hmm. And, but you know that if they make a difference to themselves or collectively as leadership teams, they impact the, the, those who they lead, those who are around them as peers or more, uh, more senior people in some cases, mm-hmm. and then organizationally. And if, if you get it properly right, culturally, your impact you can have on the way people feel about it themselves can can carry right. So yeah. the ability to to change other people's worlds through the way people lead is something that I, I, you know over time when we we get people to deliver their personal change strategy at the end of both the individual and group programs and mm-hmm. seeing the impact they can have people who have been in a role for forty years or in an organisation for forty years and they're talking about it being a you know, the most impactful time that they've spent, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in, 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 in a work scenario is, you know, it's really humbling. Um, and it is a privileged position, but you've got to, you know, you've got to be able to engage on the human, on the human level. I think that's where, you know, Kianis is about making leadership human. So it's mm-hmm. not, a tra- it's not a training program. It's not something whereby everyone comes into a program and they learn exactly the same things. It's about linking yourself to the role that's going to have you deliver um, both in the role, but uh, uh-huh. you know, um, away from it as well as being hopefully being a a better leader in and out of work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's very much a personal development journey, isn't it? And um, you know, I, I always believe that you can only impact others as much as you've impacted yourself. So that. Pausing that regaining perspective, you know, and getting clear about what it is that you want to then, as you say, prioritize. I love the three P's. Um, it's it's so important for our own internal work, you know, and that we can then, as you say, become the ripple effect within the organizations we work in. Yeah. So so tell me a little bit about more the the real challenges that you see in terms of the people, you know, who are really looking to develop themselves as leaders, you know, when it comes to moving into that zone of optimal performance outside the comfort zone. You talked about developing the discipline to slow down as that's something that you see a lot. What other challenges do you find that leaders are stretching themselves with in terms of their growth and development? Yeah, I, I think um, 
What, what we do is we're, we're bespoke in our delivery, but with regards to, uh, for, for the organization and their objectives, and that's probably the easiest way. The, the objectives that businesses have when you know we engage with the with the initial discussions around them, um, typically you have you can have new leadership teams. So a, a new developing leadership team, and that could be you know a group of seven who have worked together, but maybe one new addition or two new additions, and they want to be able to optimize the performance of that leadership team. Um, you could have individuals within that leadership team who are looking to take themselves on to to another level. Um, you also have right at a cultural level, um, an organization, uh, leaders who want to be able to identify culturally where they are. We've got this, the Kianis cultural footprint, which we talk about, which is an amazing way of giving organizations the opportunity to understand their culture better mm-hmm. and give them a, a sense of ownership of the change of it. So we'll diagnose it and it's, there are seven components to the cultural footprint. So we're talking about, um, Leadership and management. So do you have leaders who lead, who take you on a journey, who have the, the future in sight? Um, management, do you have the processes, policies, systems to, to turn the wheels on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis towards that goal? Uh, we talk about warmth and edge, which is something that I can get into in, in more detail in due course, because both individually and culturally, we talk about warmth and edge, whereby warmth is you know, a, good, a good place to work positive, nurturing, um, psychologically safe, a sense of belonging, an edge being deliveries of, of outcomes, high performance, candor. Um, and the, the high-performing organizations we see have both warmth and edge high and imbalance. Uh, then we talk about entrepreneurship and learning. So entrepreneurship, not just do you come up with ideas, but do you turn ideas into success to keep you driving forwards? And then learning, you're talking about, uh, do you have a culture of constant improvement individually and collectively to con- mm-hmm. t- continually push the dial? And then the final one is teamwork. So do you succeed as a team all pulling in the same direction? So you've got leadership, management, warmth edge, entrepreneurship, learning, uh, and teamwork. And I think that for organizations to understand benchmarking where they currently are and where they want to go, and that, that's where we can can slot in some of the other work that we do. Um, But also warmth and edge, understanding high performance with warmth and edge. And it's something that in sport is is really fascinating um, and relates directly to business. Because in my experience of both sport and business, people want to talk about high performance. Uh, A lot of the time, sport and high performance is is taken on board um, within business. But I think at the crux of it, the warmth edge dynamic is something that if you get that right in sport and in business, you've got the opportunity to, to get that, that high performance because in, in the tough times, you've got to have the warmth, but in the good times, you've also got to have the edge to keep driving that, the delivery of outcomes, the high performance, what it looks like, the non-negotiables. Um, yeah. so it's, it's something when, when, we, we, we talk at Kianis, um without data, it's just another opinion. So what we do is we create the data to be able to actually hold the mirror up to yeah. the individuals, teams and organizations to say, this is where you are. This is where you've told us you want to be. Now let's work together and try and take you there. 
Yeah, I love that reflection around want and edge. Um, I saw some research a while back from the Institute of Management Development in Switzerland that kind of looked at this area. Um, they looked at the nature of the conversations in teams um, and the difference between teams that played to win as opposed to teams that got burnt out or teams that were low performing. Um, and when they, they, they looked at these conversations, they related them back to the two core human needs. So either a need for an acceptance in which case, you know, they had these caring conversations, the warmth there, right, to kind of have people feel that they belong and they're accepted and there's that sense of safety. And then they they, they looked at the need for achievement, um, which is the, 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 that they call daring conversations at the edge, right, to get people outside of their comfort zones and, and really challenge them. And they found that in the teams of Pelé to win, there was actually a three-to-one ratio of caring to daring conversations. So it's, uh, you know, it's the balance yeah. we talked about there, but, but between that, that uh, those two factors, I think is hugely important, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think, I think it's the, the, the dialogue that you drive through it, right? I think, you know, the, I know there'll be, I'm not sure when this will, this will be released, but last week LinkedIn, the, the viral of uh, the NBA, the basketball are talking about how they, they had lost in the playoff, right? How, yeah. is, is, is that failure? Right, and a, a brilliant response around, you know, if you put that into human context, if you don't get promoted every year, that's failure. For mm. some businesses, being the number one business in their field in the world is beyond their uh, capabilities mm. at the current time, right? And I look at right back to, you know, sporting days. Um, I mentioned earlier on my, my papa, Bill McLaren. We set mm. up the Bill McLaren Foundation um, charity in his name to try and carry forward the values and principles that he brought to firstly his teaching days and then secondly um, as, a, as a commentator and um, through the foundation the foundation supported the foundation uses sports as a vehicle to unite people and take them beyond the level that they may see themselves capable mm. now they and it's, it's a grant scheme so clubs in whatever sports can apply for a grant to be able to fund a worthy cause. And there was a, there was a, a small Highlands rugby team who, that needed a, a bit of support um, to be able to get them the kit and infrastructure to be able to actually build out a team. And the foundation supported it. And through Positive Coaching Scotland, which is again about around trying to create opportunities and positivity within the sports environment, uh, they came across a team whereby they were getting hammered every single game. Mm. But they cried, tried to create a framework as to what does good look like? Mm. If you're going to be defined by a result. And I know that it's, it's a bit of a contentious issue at the moment because, you know, do kids... I know that, know that some sports, there's not a scoreboard, right? Mm. It's just you go up and you take part. But how do you then drive competition and, mm. and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm. Um, so with this, the foundation supported this team and it was all about everybody leaving, talking about something that they did particularly well on that day. And then through accumulating those marginal gains or, you know, that incremental growth um, and compound effect of, right, I only did one thing well in that first game, but actually I had to choose from two or three in that second game and then that became four or five and then suddenly the, nap start, the, the gap started to narrow between the other team scoring points and them actually scoring tries. And yeah. they scored tries, which then they were had a measure of the development and the, and the yeah. progress. And I think that, that's as relatable in a, in a business context. But 
I think the key thing from a leadership perspective, you've got to be able to have buy-in as to what good looks like. What is the expectation that you're going to put on people um, right through the levels? Where can you take them beyond what they think they're capable of? And how do you foster that sense of belonging that means that during the shitty times whereby things aren't going your way, you're still on the same boat and you're still all rowing in the same direction. Yeah. Um, which is which isn't easy and has become even more of a challenge with, you know, um, the hybrid working and less time spent in the office. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. But I, I love the focus on the process itself. You know, yeah. and um, if you if you bring your focus there and continue to do the right things over time, the right yeah. will start to start to emerge. Yeah. Um, for me, that speaks to the importance of the role of the leader as a coach. You know, I do a lot of work with salespeople. This is so crucial in the sales game. You know, you can get focused on the outcome of, of yeah. an over, right? And you know, maybe go to overwhelm. Yeah. Whereas if you just come back to, well, what am I going to do day to day? And for a leader to be able to say, okay, well, you know, this is what I see where you're at right now. And this is where I can imagine you could be if yeah. these different behaviors are coming in and encouraging that that focus on the process and, and just the growth and development of, of the individual over time, you know? Yeah, without question, because then you you can actually start reflecting back and seeing, you start realizing the areas that you're, that are working, the areas that aren't working at times, and then you can start amending. Like I, my, my life has been in, in sales post, post sport, right? Whereby the reality is, is that, you know, as a, as a founder, CEO of a business, you're customer facing, you're telling the story, you're, selling to investors, you're selling products into retail. Um, I, you know, in, in the role I do now, talking with leaders and building new business is essentially finding out where their problems lie and trying to solve their problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think only if you're aware of the process through which you're accumulating the outcomes that you're looking to achieve can you properly drive performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, got, we, all, we all have times of good, good business and, and less good business. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, doubt, I'm sure you, you've got some amazing techniques with regards to being able to build the, the frequency of delivery by doing the right things. And that's why everything we do with Kianas is actually based around behavior. So you're mm. saying, where are, the, where are the behavioral shifts? Because if you're identifying what might be an opportunity for a change, if it's only a possibility for change, then the likelihood of success is significantly reduced to saying, I will do this. So you mm. know, a big part of what we're saying is, what will people commit to? Because mm. your, your behaviours will, will deliver the outcomes, not the thoughts that you have in your head. You've got to actually do it. I love this, yeah. Someone told me it's the movement from head to heart to hand. Yeah, so <laughs> open your mind to uh, the possibility, um, feel inspired to want to take action. But then you've got to take the action. Yeah, you've got to actually yeah, yeah. get down to the deliberate practice that's that's needed to move forward. Yeah. You know? Yeah, right. No, no. The the other um, thing I, I really liked in your reflection in terms of how you work is this idea of the importance of culture and leaders as the custodians of the culture. Um, you know, it's often said that culture eats strategy for breakfast and operational excellence for lunch, but it is the context in which we in, in which uh, pe- people operate. Um, so. 
as you look across the, the kind of the corporate world today and reflect on those cultures that really enable high performance from your perspective and, and those ones where there are more challenges to that outcome, what, what are some of the differentials that you see there? What are some of the distinctions? Yeah, well, I think, um, look, if, you, if you're talking about the, the building blocks, right, the building blocks for success, um, and again, if I, if I take the seven building blocks of the Kiana's cultural footprint, um, they will they will often show up differently based on where the business is in their journey. But actually, the key thing in amongst that is to be able to talk with leadership teams and often entire organizations for them to understand, is that optimal with where they are right now and what they're looking to achieve? So, you know, I guess if you, if you, if you strip out a few of the... Um, a, a few of the components that feed into to each each area. So, within leadership, you know, you're talking about mission, vision, values, right? If you've got a business that's strong on on what is you know their why, as mm-hmm. you've spoken about, um, and and their their vision and their values. So, where are we looking to go, and what are the behaviours that are most likely to take us? in that direction that everybody is going to attach themselves onto, mm-hmm. then you've got an increased likelihood of success, without doubt. Right? Um, and I think you, you've got that behavioural set that people buy into. I think now, particularly since COVID, the culture discussion has been one that has definitely increased mm-hmm. um, for people who are looking to join businesses. Yeah. It's, it's less about the... Uh, you know, it's still a big factor, cost of living crisis and all that. But the pay, the, the pay packet is just one component. But culture and understanding what that culture looks like is a is a really important factor. But for me, I think the the, the mission, vision, values is 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 right at the core of it, um, and that shapes the culture of how we do things here. Um, then you know, I, th- I think from there, you're the people want to know that the leaders care about them. Um, and and that there is that warmth, there's that psychological safety, there's a sense of belonging uh, to the organisation, and that's something that is that is important to them. You know that community feel, the fairness, the fun, the inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all things. You know, well-being mm-hmm. are all things that are incredibly important within that. And you know, but that for us, the high-performing environments we're seeing the balance at the edge, right? So that's about. The boundaries that you spoke about, yeah. So you know, so you know, what are the non-negotiables with regards to where we lie? But then the positive stuff around edge, you know, the ambition, yeah. the analytical side of things, the 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 commerciality of a business that is going to define its success in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's got to be strongly aligned to the values of the business, so that the behaviours are aligned, right? Because I've seen. We've gone into plenty of sales businesses whereby your top salesman has some toxic behaviours. Mm. And that's a challenge for people because it's the top salesman. They, they, they um, contribute a lot to the top line. But yes. often, if, either if they change their behaviours to actually enhance the overall, you see an uplift. And sometimes you see an uplift when that salesperson steps over the boundary, they're let go, and the rest of the group suddenly pull things in yeah. the right direction. So, um, you know, elsewhere in Edge, you've got effort and drive and customer yeah. focus that are all really important things within that. And, um, you know, a lot of the businesses we found recently, 
bigger businesses whereby entrepreneurship's lower. Mm-hmm. But you start tapping into that. Is that actually an opportunity that's being overlooked whereby if you start thinking differently um, about doing things, if you start welcoming different new ideas to the equation and turn those ideas into successes, then you've got the ability to take the business on to another level. Um, so, yeah, I, I think what we're seeing is that the our, the cultural footprint um, is something that gives people a really good idea, but it also gives them this sense of, you know, it could just be a single uh, characteristic within one of these building blocks of the cultural footprint that could be enough that everybody just puts a little, little bit more effort in and it can potentially transfer transform the business yeah love it again back to the uh, kind of the importance of awareness where specifically do we have our own edges from a cultural perspective mm-hmm. so we can bring the attention there beautiful yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Rory, I've, I've one last question for you before i let you go today and sure. uh, this is kind of more like a macro view if you look at you know the world as a whole today we're in interesting times i say we always trying to say that we live in interesting times don't you but uh, <laughs> what is your what is your greatest hope for leadership in the world today? Oof, that is a big one. Um, look, I guess what uh, what attracted me to to Kianis, uh was actually the the mission that Don Ledingham, the C, the CEO, had, and that's to change the world through wise leadership. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when we're when we're talking about wise leadership and there's some key components that, that feed into wise leadership that you know we we take people through and i think that that builds you know their self-awareness perspectives of others and then you start tying into you know how do you make sense of complexity and search for the common good mm-hmm. um but where you know we talk about where the rubber meets the road it's making courageous and ethical decisions mm-hmm. um and it was really fascinating i was in the car earlier on today listening to the radio and BBC Five Live had a, a discussion on the go about AI, mm. right? And the capacity that AI has to change the world, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got your you've got skeptics who will say it's going to take away a multitude of jobs, and um, and it's but then you've got the others who are bringing a contrasting argument into the equation that says this has the opportunity to take us to a level through which we, we've never achieved before as a, as a working environment and in our personal lives as well. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. But right at the core of it, they said, you know, chat GPT being the example they use, within the AI, ethics haven't been tied into it. Mm. So sometimes the content that is spitting out could be portrayed as being unethical. Mm. And I think, you know... Um, we, through one of our analytics, um, it's, the, it's the leadership radar whereby we're talking about benchmarking individuals against what we call the admired leader. And the admired leader is essentially a mythical leader who we built through conversation with some established, recognized leaders who had huge amounts of experience at the very top end. And they thought of their most admired leader in their career. And across the board, uh, they built out 24 characteristics that, that, that all of those admired leaders had. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they scored their own, their own mind on um, what they, how they scored against all of these characteristics or statements that fed into these characteristics. And could you guess what the top two 
um, scores, the characteristics were that picked up the top two scores across this group of established and recognised leaders? I would suspect something like integrity, yeah, tying back to ethics uh, would be, be one of them. Um, and I'd imagine trust has got to be up there as well. So interestingly, it, it was um, courageous and ethical with the top two. Okay, there you go. Yeah. And then warmth, warmth was the third one. Mm, mm, mm. So you know, it's, that I think you know, it's um, it's a it's a long-winded way of saying that if more leaders had you know those three characteristics amongst a load more, yeah, then the world would be tracking in a yeah in a much better direction. Yeah. Um, but what 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 I've found through my experience is that those businesses who look to develop people are are winning more often than not. Um, because I think, you know, the natural cycle of people in the working world, and that's the same in sport, is that you come in at a level, then you do a good job at that level, and you get promoted to the next level without necessarily being upskilled in what it's going to take to do that job. And mm. then you maybe end up in a management job, but you're not told how you actually manage people. You, were, you become a manager because you were good at actually doing the job that mm. the managers are, are managing people to do. Um, and that's you know nowadays that leaders leadership's a lonely ex- uh, experience and lonely place in some places and um, being able to work in partnership with people for them to understand where they get their fulfilment from what they stand for and, and then how they're going to take those things and better deliver the the role that's expected of them is is really fulfilling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. I'm just reflecting on the the courageous piece of it, and where does where does our courage comes from? Well, it comes from our deepest vulnerability, um, which takes us back to the importance of community, which I guess we began with, right? When you're going to allow yourself to be vulnerable, when you feel safe to do that, right? So, and that's I think that's also hugely important in the, you know. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, we we talk about um, wise leadership, doing the right time, doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons, yeah. whereby right can actually change over time. Mm. But um, where, whereby it's ethical, it's with the, the common good in interest and it's creating sustainable futures. If yeah. that is, you know, if those are the three things that you follow, mm. you're not going to be a million miles away. Wonderful. Rory, thank you so much for uh, making the time uh, to be to say some fascinating insights. Um, love the work you're doing and uh, best of luck as you continue to uh, create those ripples. <laughs> thanks so much, David. No, thanks, thanks so much for having me. Keep up the great work that you're doing as well. Yeah, thanks, nice bud.